This podcast is sponsored by Drax. As the UK's largest renewable electricity generator, Drax plays a critical role in UK energy security. They have committed to invest £2.5 billion in new green energy infrastructure, creating jobs and growth across the country. Find out more at Drax.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Pauls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and James Forsyth. So a lot has happened in the space of a week. This time last Friday, there was lots of talk from Downing Street and beyond that there was no need to have an OBR forecast, that it was time to rally against the Treasury orthodoxy. And yet this morning, there has been a meeting between not just the Chancellor, but also the Prime Minister and the OBR. And the official readouts of pair made clear to the OBR they value its scrutiny. James, what's going on here? This is a kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi moment. If you strike me down, I should become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And what has essentially happened is that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng said, thanks but no thanks to the OBR's offer of a forecast to accompany the mini-budget, and ploughed on regardless. That was one of the things that spooked the market. So there is now huge weight being placed on the OBR forecast that will accompany the, the fiscal statement, which is supposed to be on the 23rd of November, but I suspect might end up being earlier. So they've currently insisted in that readout is still the 23rd. Yeah. And although, yeah, one of the things the Tory MPs are organising on is to try and pull that forward. So what I think you're, what, what, what now matters is this OBR forecast is going to be hugely influential. If the OBR basically say that these numbers don't add up, then government borrowing costs are going to spike again. So I think what you see now is Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have put themselves essentially, you know, they are waiting on Richard Hughes's judgment on whether their plan is actually going to boost the trend growth rate of the economy or not. Fraser, can we see this as a U-turn and away from the pair? Are they realising that actually for all the talk of fighting the markets and the orthodoxy, it's quite a tricky fight to take on? Yes, what they're finding, to use another Star Wars quote, that's it's, uh, be careful not to choke on your aspirations. And this is what they've done here. They've really, really gone for all of these tax cutting. They basically maxed out on it. They went for everything because they thought they politically could. And they've ended up finding out that they've overreached and they're having to row back. They've been choked by the markets. And, and we now see, you might call it a coincidence, but it just so happens. But they decided to take on the markets at a time where the markets worldwide re-established themselves as a force that can bring elected governments to their knees, as the ultimate arbiters of how much governments can and can't borrow, and under what circumstances. So I think having been given a lesson in the raw power of the markets, Liz Trust and Quasi Quartine are having to do two rather delicate things. One is to send a political message that they're not returning, they don't regret anything, they haven't been humbled, etc. We can see this sent out unofficially via various political channels. But the choreography says something different. Meeting the OBR and promising to do basically be better behaved. They're saying to the markets, OK, yes, we get the message. You've only actually seen half of our plans because we're going to give you the other half when we come up with our spending proposals. Not something they said during the budget, by the way. I don't remember the bit where Quasi Quartang said, actually, we're going to ask the markets to borrow. He did say that he would get the finances on a sustainable path in due course. But now we're, we're getting more emphasis on that. So we're promised that later on. 
But let's say they they do manage to do that and get the confidence of the markets. I mean, the pound was earlier on today up from where it was against last week's budget. And people would be pointing to that as sort of, yes, the storm's over. But the pound was always a diversion. The real problem is the gilt yields. The real problem is the borrowing costs and the fact that 40% of mortgages have disappeared from the market. So that problem is very much still there. And I have a feeling that the political shock here will mean that people who weren't always interested in politics will have tuned in this week and got the message that the Tories did some sort of crazy things, wanted to cut taxes for the rich, and as a result, everybody's mortgage has gone up. Whatever the rights and wrongs of it, I, I would regard that as a simplistic misstatement of what's happened, but it doesn't really matter. If that's the message your average punter is going to get, I do think they're going to forget that message very quickly. And James, we also have a political problem, which is how the Tory party and the government is being perceived. And that is not good at all. There's been a YouGov poll overnight, which gave Labour a 33-point lead, suggesting complete obliteration, really, of the Conservative Party were in election tomorrow. How is that landing amongst MPs? Because there was already a lot of discomfort about the market response, about the fallout from this trust and quasi Quartang's plans. What is What is the mood? So earlier this week, I was talking to a veteran MP, and he wanted to get off the phone to me. And so he said, oh, I've got to go now. Um, uh, my seat might become a marginal. This was after the 17-point YouGov poll. When I spoke to him again this morning, he didn't see find that joke funny anymore. And I mean, this is the, the problem, which is this, look, this poll, there are other polls out, they show smaller leads, but the leads are still larger than what the Labour lead was on election day in 1997. And what I think is worrying Tory MPs is this, on the one hand, you can say this is a poll taken in the immediate heat of the moment. On the other hand, you can say this is a poll taken before people have actually, to, to phrase this point, have actually felt any of the pain that is coming with higher mortgage payments and the like. Now, I think there's another consequence of this and something that you have rightly been pointing out, Katie, which is in that meeting with the OBR, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are saying, look, we've got supply-side reforms. You should consider them when you're looking at how fast the economy is going to grow. I think the prospects of, of Liz Truss being able to get through controversial supply-side reforms drops every time you get a poll like this. Fraser, there don't seem to be any good options really for Liz Truss at this point. What do you think her best approach is going into Tory party conference? Do you think now she has to stick with her plan or is it better for her to accept that the political reality, perhaps the economic reality, means that she needs a change of direction? No, she has to stick with her plan certainly right now. Including the 45%? Yep, everything. Every single last thing. But what she needs to do is what she should have done first of all, is to somehow persuade people that she's doing it in a affordable, rational, planned out way. Right now, what she needs to do most of all is to try to stop her rather regicidal party whipping itself into a regicidal mood. I mean, the, the Tories would defenestrate her relatively quickly if there's a few more opinion polls suggesting, as last night's YouGov did, a 34 Labour Party lead would leave them with, I don't know how many MPs left in the House of Commons. How many was it, James? 59, I think. 59 MPs. <laughs> now, that polling would make the Tories think, OK, we've got to get rid of her, otherwise I might lose my seat. So that's what I'd be trying to head off if I was her. So trying to show confidence, reassurance, and trying to replace the memory of these um, 
halting, rather terrible local radio interviews yesterday with a more articulate message. I think she's doing them, Laura Kunzberg, on the Sunday morning. And it'd be put it this way, if she doesn't, it would be the first Tory party leader in many, many years not to start the conference season with a Sunday interview. So she would need to show that she is in control and does have a plan. And she would need to policy-wise, stick to what she's doing before, but tonally sound a lot more conciliatory, a lot more talking about working with various partners, Bank of England, OBR. These are institutions that were set up to create confidence in the British economic system. To draw swords with all of them at the same time was a very unwise act for which she has paid dearly, a price which she may never quite be able to afford politically. But that's what she has to row back from. I think to phrase this point, I think one of the striking things in Kwasi Kwarteng's message to MPs yesterday was that line, we are working at pace to align our spending policies to show the markets there is a clear plan. It's one of those things which is, and I know it's very easy with the benefit of hindsight to say this, this is clearly something that should have been done before the mini-budget on Friday. And James, on that, we now have Tory MPs coming out to share their frustrations quite publicly. Now, You've had George Freeman say the cabinet have to meet with the prime minister and chancellor to change course, an ex-minister. You've had Julian Smith, an ex-minister, a former chief whip, effectively saying the 45p plan to abolish has to go or at least be delayed. And then you have Charles Walker, who's given an interview talking about how the party is ultimately heading to be out of power and it has a responsibility to make sure it leaves the country in a way for the next party in to inherit. What does he mean by that? Do you think that's saying a change of tack? I think one of the things that has spooked Tory MPs is the suggestion that, you know, you could get to balancing the books by either slashing capital expenditure, which is a kind of inherently short-sighted move, or by kind of holding benefits down below the rate of inflation or cutting the NHS. I think what people like Charles Walker are trying to say is don't do things that will do lasting damage on the way. And it's, I mean, you know, in some ways, Charles Walker has always been on that that wing of the Conservative Party. He has previously said that he doesn't intend to stand at the next election. I think what he is trying to say is just be careful what you do between now and then. And yeah, because yes, because you also have Peter Aldis, who's one of their MPs who previously pushed for more in terms of universal credit, who has said time is running out so the British people at the Conservative Party deserves to retain the honour of serving as their government. Do you think that feeds into a similar sense that what the government plans to do could be reckless. Yeah, I think one of the things that has worried Tory MPs since the statement on Friday is that the statement on Friday ended up drawing the market reaction it did. But then to try and make, to try and square the circle, you then go for big spending cuts. Big spending cuts, even if they never happen, create a massive reputational problem because people basically say the Tory party wanted to cut taxes for the richest and squeeze benefits for the poorest. And that, that's the, the, the problem you get into. I think what is difficult right now is to see what is the way that is both politically palatable and economically credible to get out of this. And to get out of this, they will need a lot of luck. But again, to close this podcast quoting Obi-Wan Kenobi, in my experience, there was no such thing as luck. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.